Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here with David Barris, who is Professor of Anthropology at the University of New Orleans. Welcome, David. Thank you, Liz. Good to be here. So we are doing this again since we lost the first podcast (laughs) through technical difficulties, and I appreciate your patience. I'm really glad to do it. Actually, I thought about the things that I said the last time and thought, you know, I really didn't get far enough into the whole museum thing. So now that we're here, I actually prepared. Well, that's good. This is a do-over. Yeah. So, so tell me, what did you think you left out of the first well, one? Well, you had asked me about what I thought made a good food museum. Um, for obvious reasons, the Southern Food and Beverage Museum is a really good model. But I was thinking about the fact that a lot of the food museums I've been to, and I, I really do like to go to food museums, are run by companies, right? Mm-hmm. And And some of them are lots of fun but they also represent they're also kind of problematic in some ways so i was trying to remember what some of them were and i remember i couldn't remember when we last did this so one of them is the maison cahier which is cahier chocolate um they are available in the united states under a different brand name and i can't remember what it is but this is in, in the town of Broek in switzerland that's b-r-o-c and you get a visit of the factory which is fun it's like mm-hmm. Willy wonka land mm-hmm. right a, yeah a real factory and then you um get to taste an amazing array of chocolates. That's one of the things about these company museums. There's always tasting Tastings, involved, right? yes. And and that's good. So that was fun. They're trying to um, make you want to buy their Which it their works. Brand. And in fact, there's yeah. an enormous store attached. Once you leave the tasting area, you go to the <laughs> store. And the store is very crowded, which suggests to me that it's a very successful attempt to get you to want to buy their stuff. Um, and I've also been to the Roquefort Société Caves a couple times in France. That is quite a blast. I think I mentioned the last time we recorded this that they provide you with this kind of light and sound show in the caves. It's freezing in there, by the way. You have to wear a jacket, even in the middle of the summer. Um, About the the mythological story of the invention of Roquefort, which involves a shepherd going out for lunch and sitting at the entrance to one of these caves. This is, of course, before it's a cheese cave. Putting down his lunch because he sees a beautiful woman go by, who's a ghost, of course. And he chases her for apparently quite a long time because when he comes back... His cheese has turned into Roquefort, and <laughs> thus the mythological discovery of this cheese. But the visit is a lot of fun, and of course they have a tasting at the end. Um, and then there's this the Coca-Cola Museum in Atlanta, and that sort of gets to the point I want to make here. So the Coca-Cola Museum is a lot of fun as well, and it's the whole mythology of Coke. Um, and I went, I don't know, it must have been 20 years ago when I went. Apparently... At the end of, or rather next to the Coca-Cola Museum, Coke has helped set up a civil rights museum. And so you have in both of these museums soda counters. In the Coca-Cola Museum, of course, it's where you can go and taste legacy Coke products or Coke products from around the world. They have both, and that's a lot of fun. In the other museum, they you sit at the counter and you are run through the whole experience of doing a sit-in at a, at a counter mm-hmm. in the 60s, which, of course, is a very important event. And the fact that Coke ties these things together makes them sound like really good guys. Now, I really have no idea how Coke fits within that history, so I, I'm not going to judge them for it. But that's exactly the kind of thing you want to see in museums, is, is ways of making the issue of food itself not just being about food, but being about broader issues like civil rights. And clearly, there was a reason why sit-ins at lunch counters were such a big deal during the civil rights movement. It's because that access to public accommodations, and in particular restaurants, 
was fundamentally important. Right. Um, and it remains important. I mean, I was, I was, I, I wrote a blog entry about this, but I was very amused when, I think it was last year or the year before, when a number of Trump administration officials uh, got harassed in restaurants, and people mm-hmm. said, "Oh, it's the end of civility. Restaurants always used to be a refuge. This would have never happened in the past." And I'm like, "Well, actually, <laughs> <laughs> it's happened a lot over the course of, of the last 200 years." Restaurants are, in fact, a nice place for civility, and we like to romanticize them as a great place for civil discourse, but they're also a place for protest and, uh, you know, getting food thrown at people and scandals and, Oh, well, yes, and and there's so much culture that comes out of the restaurant because of the fact Mm -hmm. that you're eating there. And even um, here in New Orleans, that the whole business, for example, of Galatoire's and uh, Gilberto and oh, that, that was, sort of yeah. thing. I mean, that's totally different yeah. and certainly um, not exactly what you're talking about, but it, it's another cultural explosion yeah. that happened. And I think actually it's not totally different because it seems when it happened, so for your listeners who may not remember, when Gilberto got fired, he was fired for sexual harassment. Right. And a large section of the city's elite came to his defense put together a website, and which is still available, I think. We love Gilberto.com. And then there were satirical readings of, of the letters that they put on the website. It was a whole thing. And that was and, the Galatoire's Chronicles turned into a play. Right. So at the time, the debate really wasn't even about sexual harassment. It was about sort of Galatoire's right, or not right, its responsibility to represent a certain kind of Creole dining experience. experience. And mm-hmm. there was a concern that that was kind of slipping out of control. And I like to think about what would have happened if that had, that scandal had happened now in the era of the Me Too movement where we're taking sexual harassment quite a bit more seriously. I mean, I thought we were taking it seriously in the 90s, but clearly we were not, given how seriously we're taking it now. So in some ways, it's kind of an interesting way to look back at that. I mean, that would be an interesting thing to put in your museum as, a, as an example of food history. Exactly. The way that you could do an exhibit on, say, I don't know, sexual harassment over the decades in, in restaurants. And not just harassment, but maybe the representation of of gender and sex. Um, you know, everything from scantily clad waitresses to... Um, I'm, I'm reminded, actually, of a very amusing restaurant review that Frank Bruni wrote when he was restaurant critic for the New York Times. Uh, it was either the Playboy Club or the Penthouse Club, if there's such a thing. One of them had a steakhouse, so he went there and ate. And... I should point out he's also gay. And so the women who kept coming up to the table really, you know, that was not why he was there. He was there to eat. Plus, he's a very serious food critic. and, and But it was, the restaurant review was very tongue-in-cheek and very amusing. And the juxtaposition, of course, of scantily clad women in food is, you know, there's the whole genre of restaurants. Yeah, That's another... You there's know, that hooters. Whole, there's hooters, exactly. But there's a whole... There's more right, than just hooters. Right, right. And that whole thing would be... That would lend itself quite well to a kind of history of representation to sex, the association of food, and the problems we have with that, because they are clearly quite problematic in, in a museum. I mean, you, you know. oh, It would be really interesting. We even talked about doing that with music and food, and how food was so often, and still is often, used instead of sex, direct sex references mm-hmm. in music. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's a great one. You could do a great, yeah. There's some famous songs along those lines. You could also, though, do an exhibit, I don't know if you've already done this, you know, on the links between restaurants and the development of certain music genres, jazz, of course, being the most notable one, but but certainly 
music in food venues or food in music venues, one of those things, mm -hmm. has been rather important for the history. I mean, you know, here in New Orleans, you can think of things like jazz brunch. But right. certainly there's a whole well, slew of nightclubs. Well, now there's the burlesque food. brunch, which covers the scantily clad women. Wait, they're still doing those? The burlesque brunch at Sobu. Mm -hmm. Oh, I didn't know about that one. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so that's a modern, a very modern woman-owned business mm -hmm. um, that is having a burlesque lunch. Interesting. Yes. Yeah, I, I don't know. I find the combination not that alluring, but obviously I'm in the minority. <laughs> so clearly that, you know, that would be a really good example. So you have that juxtaposition. You also have museums that are not food museums that have food-related stuff. Exactly. And I was just thinking about this because I was in Vancouver for the American Anthropological Association Conference last November and went to the Anthropology Museum on the University of British Columbia campus. And they have there a whole bunch of potlatch vessels, these enormous uh, bentwood boxes that are made to carry food mm -hmm. for these ceremonies that Northwest Coast Indians have done historically. And they're fascinating. So it's not a food museum, mm -hmm. not at all. Right. But it has a whole section about foodways related to material objects. And that in of itself is something you find in a lot of museums. So I think that when I look at food museums, that kind of stuff is what interests me. You know, we're looking at how people use food in their daily lives, but we're also looking at the representation of other issues, whether it's gender or race and race relations or politics. That could be another interesting one. Mm -hmm. You could do an, a set of exhibits on, say, political feasts or governor's dinners in the South or presidential feasts. I mean, one of the things that I've always been struck by is the fact that American presidents, of course, have banquets and we, we read about them, but we often don't read that much about the food. Whereas, whenever the French president has a banquet, the menu is in the newspaper. Right, yes. Because the French care. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, it, it's true. I, when I, the last time I was in France, I actually went to an exhibit of mm. menus from state dinners. And they were incredibly elaborate. You know, the, the White House menus that I've seen are very simple menus on small stock mm -hmm. and of course everyone has a menu but nevertheless they're not very elaborate whereas uh, it seems that no expense was spared in creating these menus for the state dinners that the French government gave. Well the Elysee Palace where the French president lives actually has a kind of national library of wines for instance mm -hmm. so they basically have all the wine so that's obviously an important concern yes. and in fact Back when Pierre Mendes France was uh, prime minister, so in the 1950s, he almost lost his job because he went to an agricultural fair and drank milk in public. Oh, now, France yeah. is a big dairy-producing country, right, right? right? But they make cheese with it. They don't drink it. <laughs> right. and, um, and, you know, wine, of course, is also an important agricultural product in France. And the idea that a prime minister would be seen drinking something other than wine in public, God forbid he should have drunk Coke. Oh, um, that would have probably, probably would have just been assassinated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, so that, that kind of thing would make for, for great museum exhibits. I guess the things that I'm um, wondering about how you do and that I would love to see done are things like, I mean, well, we already mentioned civil rights, but the other one is food and work. Mm -hmm. You know, everything from working in fields, which I think you have uh, some agricultural stuff at the museum, to restaurant work, to... I guess the one that I feel like we almost never talk about and yet is so fundamentally important are things like university cafeterias. 
um, or hospital cafeterias, which are sometimes kind of odd. Like when my daughter was born, I went, to, this was Columbia Hospital for Women in DC, which no longer exists. They were serving Scrapple in the cafeteria, which is not exactly health food. And you would think a hospital would have healthier food than that. <laughs> I happen to love Scrapple, so I was happy to see it. But I thought that was odd. Um, and so that was being served in the hospital cafeteria, yeah, not being served not to, to patients. patients. No, not as far as I know. I mean, my wife was in the hospital overnight, so she didn't get to eat a lot. Yeah. But um, nor do I think she was particularly interested in eating at the time. But that was a long time ago. Um, but I was. So. <laughs> <laughs> so you were glad to see so the So I scramble. went to the cafeteria. Yeah, but I do remember thinking it was a strange thing to find in a hospital since it's, yeah. you, know, you think hospitals are going to serve food that is good for you. But. Well, in addition to all those industrial things and certainly the production of food, whether it's from in a factory mm-hmm. or um, in a distillery or a brewery or mm-hmm. whatever, as well as the agricultural things, we also try to look at the other end and talk about the waste issues and all yeah. of that. And that's probably one of the hardest ones to depict in any kind of physical way because I, we did talk the last time about the problem with having exhibits where you want to have the artifacts tell the story. Right. And you can't really leave food out for people to see. And because obviously not only is it going to deteriorate, but it's going to attract pests. And so you, you, know, you could perhaps have some kind of a bottle recycling machine that makes that sort of sand that they can make out of bottles or whatever. But, you know, you really aren't going to find a lot that you can do that tells that story. And then you wind up with lots of panels and just photographs and you have a very flat exhibit. Even if you use a television screen Mm -hmm. or monitor and try to show something physically. I wonder if there's a way, though, for you to come up with a, a model of some sort. But the thing I'm thinking about is water. So water is something we often forget about as being really fundamental to food. It's also fundamental to public health, right? And clearly the different sources of water and the systems for both bringing clean water in or water in and treating it and for getting rid of sewage are you know major infrastructure that really make modern life possible. It's one of the things that is becoming really problematic with our lack of support for infrastructure mm-hmm. and in the developing world just lack of access to resources so a way of depicting that would be really interesting but i wonder what kind of model you could do that would not involve just a lot of panels you know we get our water from the mississippi and i don't know i'm sure there are lots of water systems around the south that are different hopefully in better shape and yet you know, that is, again, something, if you could come up with some kind of, maybe get some, some engineering student to build you a little model of the water system. Sure, yeah. That would be a bit like if you go to the the Insectarium. Yes. They've got, like, an alive ant colony thing. Mm-hmm. So something on that scale. Yeah. Without yeah. the ants. Without that, yes. Um, <laughs> that might be really interesting. I guess what I'm struck by, though, with food museums is this tension between, on one hand, promoting products, which obviously is what the corporate museums do, and dealing with serious issues, which is what a museum like yours does, the the idea, though, is you want to be able to draw people in. And with food, people kind of expect there to be some kind of, you know, taste involved. And that's a difficulty because you can't be feeding people constantly unless you are an industrial museum pr- promoting a product. 
and even they, you know, the Roquefort people only give you a taste of four kinds of cheese. I mean, it's four yeah. different kinds of Roquefort, which is pretty good. Right. The chocolate, on the other hand. Oh, yeah, that just, was, was just endless. limitless, yeah. And it's surprising how much they have. And the same thing with Coke, but I guess that's not so surprising. <laughs> in any case, the, um, the, the trick then is to figure out a way to both rope people in and give them a, an experience that is not necessarily always pleasant. I mean, if you're going to talk about, say, civil rights and, and food, it's not really about the pleasure of food, right? There was the, the story of Booker Wright, the guy who worked at Lusco's in Mississippi, mm-hmm. you know, who was on an NBC documentary back in the 60s that was turned into an oratorio by the Southern Foodways Alliance. Mm-hmm. So there's a way of doing things that way through kind of musical approaches. But again, how you reproduce that in a museum other than on a one-off performance right. is hard to figure out. The only other thing you could do would be to film something like that or tape it True. and then show it on a... On a loop of some sort. Well, of course, your museum isn't just a set of exhibits. You also have a lot of events, right? right. I mean, I feel we, like I get emails from you guys every week with... Uh... And, and we do allow people to get a drink mm-hmm. and carry it around with them, which right. gives them some part of the sensory experience of the so, museum. But what I'm saying about that is that when you consider that you have performances, you have readings, you have discussions and lectures, you have cooking demonstrations, you are, in some respect extending the museum experience, and mm-hmm. I realize a lot of museums do this, but probably a museum of the sort that you have, a history museum or an ethnography museum, is more likely to do that than, say, an art museum. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't know, does the Museum of Modern Art really need to make paintings come alive? Probably not. Mm-hmm. You know, But a food museum or a culture museum like the Anthropology Museum, they kind of do, because you, you don't just want to look at a wood box you want to know what was it for right or a totem pole or something right. like that right and so. it, it it's not about the sort of veneration of the object mm. that you find in an art museum right so the object fits see that's that's fundamental what you just said so the you're venerating the art in an art museum for its own sake mm-hmm. at best you're going to put it in a kind of art history context like so and so begat so and so and right. etc when we're looking at objects of the kind that you have in your museum, what we're looking at is we're looking at things in a cultural context. I mean, if you just have a fork there, I'm not interested in a <laughs> right, fork. Right. But if you say this is the kind of fork that was in, you know, developed to replace people using hunting knives, oh, well, that's much more interesting, right? right? Or this is the fork that President Kennedy used at his last meal. All right, that's more interesting, right? Mm-hmm. That becomes... You know, that's that's precisely what makes those objects interesting. Otherwise, in some ways, they're just ordinary objects. You know, they right. all have forks. But. Right. And they, the thing also is that when we're looking at the ordinary objects that we have access to today, you have to have a particular story to see them in a museum. Mm-hmm. But if you're looking at the ordinary objects from 200 years ago, the story doesn't have to be quite so specific because right. then you're just learning about something that's different. It's not an ordinary object now, even though it was 200 years ago. Right. And I, I think about something like the National History Museum, the Smithsonian Museum, which has Julia Child's Kitchen, but in their food exhibit, they also have, I think I've mentioned this to you before, they have the bun pan, mm-hmm. which my mother had, my grandmother had, everybody, we have a bun pan, everybody has a bun pan. And I never really gave it any thought. I assumed it was called a bunt pan because it was some German thing. And it turns out it was a pan designed by Nordic Ware for this 
women's group, Jewish women's group in Minnesota, the I think the Hadassah group there. They have the whole history of the museum along with a bunch of bunt pans, right? It's fascinating, and it never occurred to me that it was an American story based in Minnesota, of all places, that created this, you know, this pan that we all have and that we all eat bunt cakes and take them particularly completely for granted. It's like, that's a cake, right? Um, who knew there was a history to it? Right, right. Plus, there's also the connection, though, with that and the Turk's cap, which which is its own mold, so mm. that if you look at certain, say, cakes that were made with yeast mm. before everybody was using baking powder, there were cakes that didn't have the hole in the middle the way the bunt pan does and its relationship to the angel food cake. Gotcha. But it still had that interesting decorative shape, and it was called a Turk's cap. Interesting. And so you would bake essentially a cake in it that was a yeast-based cake before we had the kinds of quick cakes that we mm-hmm. have today. So there's still a connection yeah. to... Well, I'm sure there's a connection. I mean, obviously, they didn't invent cake in Minnesota. And they didn't... I'd like to think that all culture comes from Minnesota. fluted but, you know. look, you yeah. know, yeah. That, but that kind of history you can tell through those objects, and oftentimes it's quite unexpected, mm-hmm. that, that sort of thing. So that, that's cool, and you can also, of course, tell the stories of various ethnic groups, various national movements, you know, and, and certainly when you're looking at food, it raises a lot of questions. I read a piece recently about kneffa, which is a, what I, I thought of as a Palestinian pastry, and apparently Palestinians are most well-known for it in the Middle East, a Stella Maris mm-hmm. in your neck of the woods. Yes serves a very nice version of it, in fact. But it turns out it's all over the Middle East, and this piece was about different versions of it that you find in different parts of the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And when you realize that it's got this kind of complicated history behind it, which is linked to the, to get back to your Turks cap, linked to the Ottoman Empire, of course, Uh but also linked to Palestinian nationalism today, is fascinating. I don't think you can put a piece of kanafa in your museum because it might not last long. (laughs) And if it did last long, you'd have all the problems you mentioned before. So I don't know how you, that's that's an interesting question. How do you do a story, of, I mean, I don't know what it's, actually I do know it's cooked in a big round pan. I guess you could get one of those and put it in yeah, the Yeah, that's, I mean, that's I often what we do is we get whatever kind of mm-hmm. instruments you need to make it and put that together. And then you can have maybe mm-hmm. a picture of a finished one, or we make a model of mm-hmm. it that's not edible. You know what else you could do, and I, this is a, an exhibit that you should definitely do if you haven't done it already it would be one on the debates around cultural appropriation, which have been oh my gosh fierce. Well, yes. and they're fascinating because there are so many contradictions in them. You know, for instance, if you take something like tacos al pastor, mm-hmm. so tacos al pastor are delightful, wonderful, typically Mexican, I believe Mexicans, Mexico City or origin tacos that have their origin in the Middle East mm-hmm. uh, because they come from Middle Eastern immigrants who moved to Mexico City who then substituted pork for lamb, but they're still making that, that shawarma tower of meat, mm-hmm. and that's where that comes from. So that's a really interesting idea. So at that point, you know, whose food is this? Where does it come from? It's clearly Mexican. Mm-hmm. It's clearly Lebanese and Syrian as well. Mm-hmm. Shepherds, on the other hand, do not tend to herd pigs. So, you know, it's... It's odd. And then, of course, it's in this country, and people do all kinds of interesting things with it in this country as well. You know, at what point does the food cease to belong to a particular group? Probably immediately, but, you know, nevertheless, you know, how should these fights go? There's a a long discussion about whether or not 
Glenn Bell ripped off this family in California when he invented Taco Bell. And he literally says he did. I mean, he went uh-huh. to their restaurant and observed them for like months before he started his own uh, company. So there's that. On the other hand, apparently the family doesn't really resent him. They still have their restaurant. Right. And Gustavo Arellano has written about this in some interesting ways. And, you know, there are lots and lots of ways you could display many Southern things around that since there's huge debates in, you know, in the South around things like soul food or mm-hmm. Southern food or various regional foods. I mean, tamales would be a good example of that. We obviously have an indigenous tradition of tamales here, but they don't really come from here at some point. Right. And the question, on some level, the one has to ask, does it matter anymore? It right. probably doesn't. Right. But anyway, that would be a really good thing to put on display. Have you, you haven't done that yet? or? So we have, we tried to discuss it with mm-hmm. certain things. And I think that the, a very interesting question is the difference between, say, fusion cuisine, where some chef sits around and says, oh, I'll take a little of this and a mm-hmm. little of this and a little of this, and the kind of assimilation that happens when you have people living together and then you have adaptations, mm-hmm. just like the tacos al pastor, that happen kind of organically and not because somebody just changed things. It's much more of a social invention. And I think that we tend to use the word fusion just for all of it, but I make a big distinction between what happens when people live together and then the food of everyone changes, Mm -hmm. uh, different peoples live together, or when somebody just makes their own decision right. to kind of Well, there's another distinction things. as well. You know, there's an old, old debate in anthropology about cultures, which is the theory of cultural diffusion. Mm-hmm. Did somebody invent something and then it spread over the world, say, I don't know, fried food? It seems unlikely that one person invented that. It was probably... But I don't know. I mean, you know, versus separate inventions. Like, we all came up with the same idea at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it could have diffused or it could have been that in several different places people came right. up with the idea. Right. Oftentimes it's hard to say with a lot of, especially cooking techniques, because... Mm-hmm they're fairly obvious so people probably came up with them on their own but who knows so when you're looking at things like that though like boiling let's yeah. assume that everybody independently probably came up yeah. with that yeah so when you get to specific foods though you know the question is whether or not people are going to make claims about them and whether or not it really matters to them you know and oftentimes that's related of course to whether or not people are in relative positions of power and if they feel like other things are being taken from them and they're being deprived of an ability to speak mm-hmm. so you might have a debate around say who can speak for hummus in the middle east which of course is a debate versus something you don't have a debate about like bagels mm-hmm. and when i was a kid we used to go from minnesota to new york to visit my grandparents and we would get wonderful bagels and bring them back in a suitcase and nobody else had bagels and then lenders, you know, the big bagel mm-hmm. juggernaut, started filling up all the grocery stores with what are absolutely terrible bagels. But nevertheless, suddenly, everybody, everybody had, had bagels. bagels. Mm-hmm. And they were no longer particularly exotic, nor were they particularly Jewish. I mean, I think people think they're sort of vaguely Jewish still, but given how ubiquitous they are. And on the hummus front, sure, the Israelis and the Palestinians and the Lebanese and the Syrians can fight all they want about hummus. But in fact, here in this country feels like hummus is on every restaurant menu you go to for and many of them are not middle eastern restaurants mm-hmm. in the slightest that don't even pretend to be so clearly in this country nobody cares right <laughs> um except a few political activists right yeah. so the you know on that level it's really a question of why it matters to some people and sometimes it matters for very good reasons 
and I guess everybody would prefer that people fight over hummus rather than actually kill each other. But the you know, but at the same time, it some things don't seem to matter as much. You know, yeah. nobody's going to make we could we could tell a story about where chocolate comes from, but nobody gets really bent out of shape over who chocolate belongs to. Right. Um, it's sort of hard to pinpoint that. Right. Same um, thing with coffee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Although in that case, and this is true for chocolate as well, then you get a different set of ethical issues, which has to do with like fair trade issues. Sure. Yeah. You know, people who are producing it, we aren't going to say they col- they culturally own it. But we are going to say that they perhaps should be compensated better for their work mm-hmm. um, that mm-hmm. they're doing currently, and and we should work out ways for that to happen. That's the those kinds. You could do a whole set of exhibits around sort of ethical debates in 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 the food world, whether it's the Me Too thing that we talked about earlier, or fair trade, or you know globalization, you know even GMOs, which you know are controversial, although it's not always clear exactly why. Right. Um, but nevertheless, it is really something that might lend itself to a really good exhibit. Um, yeah, I think so. So, David, thanks so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. You've been listening to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network of the National Food and Beverage Foundation. You can listen wherever you listen to your podcast and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.